0: Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie making process. Hosted by Reboots, Remakes, Comic Book Movies, and sequels to Reboots, Remakes, and Comic Book Movies. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by The Dolphin Hotel. The deepest rest awaits you only at The Dolphin Hotel. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And today we are going to be discussing ASMR. No, this is the <laughs> vessel. <laughs> or this is the vessel. <laughs> <is the> <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this final record playing in the background. Oh, it's <laughs> cool. cool. I think I am going to start
1: <laughs> one of those channels.
0: And okay. this is the podcast where we analyze and break apart movies. If you don't know what a mortar and pestle is, that is where the show comes from. The idea of this show is the mortar. A mortar and pestle is a, uh, a kitchen tool that you've probably seen. It's like this little stone bowl with this other stone, like, I don't know, tool, this pillar thing that if you put like corn or wheat or Whatever, if people actually still farm these things at their little houses, you would put it in this little bowl, this stone bowl, and you would use the uh, the pestle, is that little mortar thing, and you... Well, the mortar is the bowl. The, the pestle is that other stone thing. <laughs> see, I'm already <laughs> jacking it all up and you use the pestle against the mortar to grind up the stuff. And so we call the show The Pestle because we take movies and we put it into our mortar and we are the pestle. We grind it up and we see what movies are made of. And as filmmakers, we, we like to analyze these things and, and see what we can learn from the process um, to hopefully become, I don't know, better filmmakers, possibly help people enjoy movies better, or maybe hate the ones that aren't as good. (laughs) so maybe that would kind of bring me a little bit of pleasure to find out that simple movies no longer are satisfying to people. Like the idea that we've ruined, you know, kitschy films, you know, for one or two people. I'd like that.
1: Yeah. I would I would too. Maybe fewer of them would be made. Ah, oh, if only. I don't think that we have that much sway though. I don't think I don't either. Let's be
0: honest. Yeah, but hey, one little one can dream. Yeah, one can dream and we can be that one drop in the ocean.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it, we're always very careful on this channel, this podcast to make sure that we, you know, pay homage to those who are creating regardless of of the level or whatever it is like it really doesn't matter if you're making transformers 12 or if you're making you know the next moonlight whatever version that is the the spectrum can spectrum can be great or you know for lack of a better term crappy but at least you're making something you know and in a world where there are so many people who Especially now, I think need entertainment. I think that I was watching a um, an interview of a guy that I that I follow on YouTube a lot, and he he said that he like never watches TV. That like, goes to the movies maybe once a year. And you know, there's part of me that was like, oh man, this guy gets a lot done, and he works really hard, and, and man, that's that's pretty awesome. But then there's another part of me that 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 said, well, you know, he is definitely the minority. I think. He's actually thrived in this, this COVID environment. And I think that so many haven't that movies and films and shows and, and, you know, Netflix are an escape that I think that people need. And so it almost doesn't, it almost doesn't matter if you're creating something that's not as good as, you know, the next moonlight. As long as you're creating, I think that there's going to be a group or a, a, an audience for you that audience might like that style, whatever that is, but your style needs to come out and needs to be out there. So, so yeah, just create cause the world needs more of it of, it doesn't need a bunch of people who aren't, you know, who are like this guy and, and think that, you know, TV and movies and stuff are like destroying the, the fabric of society. I don't believe that. I think that they're necessary. I think that a lot of us are here because of them. And so I'm, I think that they're important. They're just not important to this person, but they're important to people like us and to people like you who are listening. And if you're a filmmaker, just make stuff, you know, and then worry about whether or not it's going to be critically acclaimed or mass acclaimed later, you know, and I think that what the, the film we're covering tonight is a good example of where you can go to from last week's episode,
0: if that is any clarity. Absolutely, no. And just to piggyback one more comment on that, and yeah, I movies are necessary and, and stories are necessary. I mean, that's the the the, the history of humanity is told through mm-hmm. stories. Like the only reason that we know who we are, or where we're going. It's because of stories, which is very relevant to the film we are covering today, which is what?
1: Memento. So if you haven't watched this film, please pause this episode because the entire movie is a spoiler (laughs) in a way, if you... Loop back around on yourself. Anyway, yeah, so please pause this episode, go watch it, and then come back because we're going to spoil a lot.
0: For sure. And we'll also touch a little bit on last week's episode with following. I don't think it'll be anything too heavy, but just beware if you didn't listen to last week or have seen following that may pop up a little bit later or not TBD. But we're going to cover a few things. We'll touch on cinematography a little bit, and in, in the sense of we'll talk about setting the tone for a mechanically complex film. We'll also talk about writing and story, why this film would not work if told with a traditional structure. And we'll also try to compare Memento to Following and and try to figure out what does an extra $9 million budget get you? (laughs) And We'll talk about other such stuff and things and stuff. So this film, the
1: synopsis about it is a man with short-term memory loss attempts to track down his wife's murderer. Directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Christopher Nolan, based on the short story by Jonathan Nolan. Cinematography by Wally Pfister, starring Guy Pearce as Leonard, Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie, Joe Pantoliano as Teddy, Stephen Tobolowski as Sammy Jenkins, Harriet Sansom Harris as Mrs. Jenkins, and Callum Keith Rennie as Dodd. The other day, you mentioned that maybe somebody was trying to set you up, get you to kill the wrong guy. Oh, well, I go on facts, not recommendations, but thank you. Lenny, you can't trust a man's life to your little notes and pictures. Why not? Because your notes could be unreliable. Memory's unreliable. Oh, please. No, 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 really. No, Memory's no. not perfect. It's not even that good. Ask the police. Eyewitness testimony is unreliable. Matt, the cops don't catch a killer by sitting around remembering stuff. Right, They, I don't they know. collect facts. That's not what I'm saying. They make notes, and they draw conclusions. Facts, not memories. That's how you investigate. I know, it's what I used to do. Look, memory can change the shape of a room, it can change the color of a car, and memories can be distorted. They're just an interpretation, they're not a record. And they're irrelevant if you have the facts. You really want to get this guy, don't you? Killed my wife, he took away my fucking memory. He destroyed my ability to live.
0: You're living for revenge well I'm gonna get the best I loved. I mean just watching that clip just now I didn't I realized something that I really hadn't realized through my many viewings of this film and that's the sheer level of confidence that Leonard has despite having no idea what he's done for most of his entire day <laughs> like let alone probably the past several months or years who knows how long he is just absolutely confident and just knows. That he knows, even though clearly he doesn't know jack shit as, you know, Teddy keeps trying to tell him. Anyway, this isn't something I've actually seen that many times, but I don't know. Have you is this has it been a while since you actually sat down and watched this?
1: Yeah, it's been a long time. I think this is only my second time to see it. So it was like watching it for the first time. No, it's probably the third time, Mm -hmm. at least the third time. Yeah. Yeah. But it's been so long that I forgot, uh, you know, because there's so many twists and they make you think one thing and another thing and whatever mm-hmm. so it was like a first viewing for sure and yeah it was entertaining like the whole time I, I loved it I mean I feel like I don't know why so much I guess just the the setup of him not knowing anything all the time always relearning shit is the reason why all the exposition is is great and actually adds to the story rather than being annoying it's annoying to everybody who <laughs>
0: in the story you know in the story
1: <laughs> right they're right. annoyed but to us it's like reaffirming oh, this guy like is a is a mess he has no idea what's going on so i get it and it's it's necessary and it furthers the 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 plot you know a lot it was it was just yeah it was really great and then the the acting too was like It's hard to describe. It's not great, but it's not bad, but it's also not just okay. It's, it's unique. That's how I'll say it. It's unique. Hmm. It's like, do I buy Guy Pierce? Yeah, I do. I do. But when he's giving all this exposition, it's okay. How I'll compare it is you know where he was talking about Sammy Jenkins and how when he would see Sammy there was this there was this thing behind his eyes that that just you re- he like there's a little bit of recognition behind his eyes and then at the end of the movie and that's what that's what like triggered him to think oh this guy could definitely be mm-hmm. not faking but there could be something there but then at the end of the movie he he said these or towards the end he says You know, what do you do when you meet somebody who thinks that they know you? You fake like you know them. And so that's what he's doing. It was like faking like he knew Guy Pierce's character. I forget his name. Uh, Leonard. Leonard, thank you. Faking like he knew Leonard because he didn't want to look like an idiot for not knowing Leonard, you know, maybe for the hundredth time that he's met Leonard. Right. And that's how I feel like this acting was. Hmm. I felt, which is actually brilliant. If that was the intention, it was brilliant because it was like this little piece of and it was constant the entire time. It was just the way
0: I felt like you, everyone else treated him that way. I felt like he was always walking up to people trying to introduce himself like, hey, this is the first time we met. And we have this weird look. And I think this is probably what you're you're being drawn to is that is this look on everyone's face. The first time we're meeting them is like the 10th time that he's actually meeting them. And so they're just kind of giving him this once over this whole time, studying him to look for the lie in the same way that he was looking for the lie in Sammy Jenkins. Like they're kind of watching this guy. Like, is this guy for real? I don't know. And so they're, everyone's around him kind of testing him constantly. And it's a bit of a needle. Whenever he finds out, of course it's a fresh needle every single time. So, (laughs) yeah,
1: I mean, there is that, but, I'm specifically with Leonard though, Mm. there's this, this way that, that guy approaches that character that is very, like, it's very hard to put it on to, to like put it into words because it's, it's almost like he's reciting something. Okay. There it is. I'm starting to get it. I'm starting to get it. It's almost like he's reciting something that's, that he's recited a thousand times before but he thinks that he's reciting it for the first time mm. but we're feeling that he's recited this a thousand times before so we had that same look we're seeing that same look in his his delivery that he was seeing in Sammy Jenkins eyes this this like like oh wait He's said that a million times before. This is something like he has some kind of recognition of these phrases of this delivery of the way th- this experience uh, or whatever. Like when he's on the phone delivering the whole exposition, the whole story to whoever was on the phone, which turned out to be, I guess, Teddy. But, you know, the whole you're, you're sitting there thinking like, like this isn't normal delivery. This is very like line, then line, then line. Rude, you know what right? I mean? Yes. Yes. Very. So you have this feeling of this was planned or done before, or, you know, like I'm seeing into his brain and he's, he's like forcing me to think that I've, that he's done this before, but really he hasn't. We're just watching this happen in real time, you know, at least on the phone, the phone section, it was, I don't know if that was intentional, but knowing Nolan, it probably was, you know? Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's the only way I can describe that kind of acting because I've seen Guy Pearce in other films and he's never acted that way ever. He's a fantastic actor. Right. So which makes you think, man, even this kind of thing, whether it came from Nolan or for him, from him was probably intentional. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the story just brilliantly woven together. I mean, when I finished watching it, I went and told my wife, I said, you need to watch this movie for your book that you're working on because this this shit is. Amazing how they reveal a little bit, you know, like they reveal a little bit into what you already knew. Reveal a little bit more into what you already knew before then, and then uh, leading up to that. And it just is is I don't know if anybody movies had ever done that before this one. Was this before Pulp Fiction? Not that Pulp Fiction really did that. It was just out of order, I know,
0: but yeah, it was out of order in th- multiple stories. This was like six years after Pulp. Okay, and so yeah, I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm sure there's other like disordered movies. I don't know that I've seen any that are as chronologically reversed as this movie. Uh, yeah. There's one irreversible, but that might have come out after this movie. This that might have been almost in response. I would have to look that one up and I'm not recommending that movie. That's a brutal movie. But irreversible is the other one that comes to mind that closely mimics this. Yeah, there's not a many. Yeah, there's really not that many. It's just
1: Nolan's play with time has always been this incessant, you know, love for something that we can never truly understand. You know, where we feel it, we feel the passage, we feel the experience of it, but we can't put it into words. We can't hold it in our hands. We can't you know, smell it or taste it or, but you feel it yeah. constantly all the time in every cell and every breath. And, and I think he's just fascinated about that, which makes me love all this stuff even more because, you know, even, even his films that I'm not crazy about, there's this air of, it's important to catch everything, right? Don't miss it. Cause once you miss it, it's gone. It's, it's passed you know, and this play with it is just so intriguing. It makes me feel like, like whatever I'm watching is important.
0: I I think of all the things to tinker with his fascination with time makes the most sense from a filmmaking perspective, because otherwise for, for one time is how we experience, you know, life. And so to start to play with that as a fundamental Element of the human experience makes a lot of sense to say that, hey, if I start tinkering or or playing around with time in any number of ways, is to start to call into question our own experiences and our own reality and to give us something new that we have, we were unable to experience in real life, a non sequential expression of time. And so that's a really smart way to think about filmmaking and, and something that probably has, you know, endless permutations and then yeah i think you kind of touch on something else that i think is interesting which is he leonard does seem to have this kind of general knowledge that he has a condition like he pops too and i think the movie touches on this in that final sequence Um, but his last memory is supposed to be of like the death of his wife That's the last thing he, the last new memory that he has. And so for him, at any given moment when he, you know, his memory resets, like, it should be a deeply disconcerting moment, right? Like, you're just waking up from your wife dying. This is, this would be weird. It would be like if you said, my last five years didn't happen, that the last moment I remembered was, whatever, being a pallbearer at my grandmother's funeral. (laughs) Like, it would be like, wait. What am I doing right here? Now, I think they kind of solve for that towards the end. Whenever Teddy starts telling him, you're only remembering things that you want to remember. Like you're creating your own reality right now. But then also, if he was freaking out every time he reset, that would make for a really difficult movie to sit through. <laughs> like you'd, you'd just be yelling for two hours straight. Just constantly. Constantly, yeah. And so it's super forgivable and desirable for for him to kind of you know smooth over that that wrinkle, but yeah. And but in, there are certain aspects where they kind of give into it a little bit too, where he's kind of remembering to some degree his interaction with police. And I think that clip that we played a minute ago, him and Teddy talking about memory, how unreliable it is, is is pretty fundamental to this movie because I think that's a bit of a thesis statement that. He thinks he's building a completely reliable world that he doesn't need memory because he has facts, but, but those things are, you know, tightly intertwined because he no longer knows where these facts even came from, um, which of course culminates, uh, in the, in the pivotal final moments of the film. But we'll get into that in here in a second. You said some things I want to get to. So I'm going to blast through a a few notes here. Cinematography wise, that first shot, as the credits roll is really smart in that whole opening sequence where you know the polaroid is rewinding from the the photo of the the murder victim you know and the the reversal of the gunshot the whole opening reversing out of the gunfire is absolutely beautiful right the the polaroid gets sucked back up into the camera i want to say i read this script a long time ago and i'm just now remembering how he describes all that but yeah the the, the Polaroid, you know, sucks up the uh, the, the picture, the, the gun flies up into his hand and the scream and the bullet flies back, which is very all reminiscent of a recent film uh, that Nolan made. But no, no, you know, no idea which one could it be. Yeah. It could be any of them. And there's this really great what I love cinematography wise is there's this really great push in. As everything's reversing out as he's unfiring the gun we're pushing in that's a very like he probably spent a little bit of time like perfecting that camera move uh, because we're used to doing certain things doing certain things a certain way like oh we're going to push in for this dramatic moment the speed the timing all kind of shifts and obviously the 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 motion that you're pushing all shifts a little bit whenever you're you're reversing out of that in order to to create the moment right now whenever you're filming it you're pulling back instead of pushing in, knowing that you're going to reverse this later and that that's going to be a push in per the viewer, per the uh, the sequence of everything that's happening. So very clever. I also like that opening sequence because it establishes kind of the central puzzle or question, like for one, why is this in reverse? Why did he kill this guy? Are these very fundamental things that kind of pop out of that opening sequence and it helps To establish that something is off and you're not wrong for being a little confused because the very next thing we see is teddy alive and cheerfully running off with leonard and you're like okay so the first time you watch this it's probably this feeling of oh okay we're going back to the whole three days earlier you know routine only to find that sequence end with him getting killed and you're like wait what is happening and then we cut to the black and white sequence again. And I love how they just keep interspersing, alternating between color and the black and white sequence. And after that very next sequence, you have a suspicion after that one. You're like, I think we're just kind of going back a little bit and then catching up. And then sure enough, you know. Hey, Lenny, <laughs> like <laughs> and they have he did a great job of establishing these really noticeable parts to begin and then sequences so that your memory is triggered and you understand, oh yeah, I remember that moment. And then after that second, you know, time through, you're like, okay, we're we're just backing up a little bit every time. And I'm and it's all kind of set up to disorient you in a knowing way from that very opening sequence with the, everything moving backwards, which leads us to something important with the the writing and the, the story, which is moving backwards through this story is more than just a gimmick. It's not something like in his last film, it was the the reorganizing of everything and following was more of a gimmick to, to grab your attention. It didn't really serve the story very well, so much as just kept the viewer engaged in this It's pivotal. I think it's absolutely critical to the plot because we begin on the murder. Why did he kill this guy? Whereas if we played the entire movie forward in chronological order, there's absolutely no mystery or surprise at the end of this thing. He just, we just watch someone like hunt down and kill someone. <laughs> like that's, that's all you watch. And that's, yeah. uh, it's kind of macabre in a sense to watch how people treat Leonard and it becomes. Very less engaging. You just feel right. You feel a little gross, I think, if you were to just watch this thing in sequence. And then, of course, the whole Sammy Jenkins thing really has no no meaning to this story at all. Yeah, it's completely different texture. And I saw a clip last week as I was digging up stuff for Following where Nolan mentions that I think he tried to write Following in chronological order and then rewrite it out of chronological order. As opposed to this one, he's like... That messed my head up so much. I didn't try it. I just kind of wrote this as the story progresses in the way I it unfolds in the film. I didn't try to go backwards and and reverse. Oh, he wrote
1: it forward, and then he wrote it now, backwards. He wrote it. He wrote it backwards. Yeah. Okay.
0: So I thought that was interesting because I probably would have approached it the other way, and now I would probably second guess that based on the master. <laughs> but the other thing about the the, the sequencing is. We experience the world much like Leonard does. We are plopped into a scenario without any understanding of how or why we arrived there. And we have to figure out what we're doing. That is the exact situation that Leonard does. So what this does for us, the viewer, is that it creates buy-in, a.k.a. the suspension of disbelief, because there is never any dramatic irony where we know something that Leonard does not. So we always believe him when he says he doesn't remember. This is absolutely critical for the story to work. Asking the audience to just kind of go along. If, you know, we were doing everything Mm -hmm. chronologically, you'd be, you'd be asking the audience to just go along, believe the guy that he's forgot everything, even though we just saw what happened. He's never met this person to him, but we've already seen him meet this person. And so you start to stretch, it becomes not just boring, but you're also straining credibility with the viewer because we've seen this character experience what we know to be true. And so if he has amnesia, the, the the core of it has to be that we can't know his memories when he does not, unless that's a specific intention of the story. In this case, it's not, we need to believe him. We need to buy into his, his reality. And so that disorienting effect that he's feeling, we also get to experience through the the breaking of traditional structure. So that's a very brilliant, absolutely critical element to this story. And it's also, what you mentioned earlier, is that it's a great excuse to build a world of exposition. <laughs> like, the tattoos yeah. get to reveal all these facts, the Polaroids with these mysterious notes. He's constantly telling people information like it's new, like he's just dropping a nugget on. You, 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 you see, I have a condition. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. And they, as a, as a, you know, great narrative tool, it's a great way to just kind of dispense exposition as it suits the, uh, the story instead of just dropping everything on us at once. One, you know, the way to destroy this movie would have been to open it with a, like a, a two minute voiceover narrative, explaining his situation. Instead, he feeds us little pieces of information at a time so that, one, we're underwhelmed, but, two, we're asking questions that we get to have answered. It's a very incredibly smart use of Winnie's uh, condition, <laughs> as he keeps calling yeah, it. Yeah, and
1: it's interesting because we're going backwards, but it does feel like you're going forwards. Yeah. And I think part of part of what helps that is this, like, I mean, the Sammy story is forward, but we get it as he goes backwards,
0: Yeah. That whole black and white sequence is the only forward moving sequence in its entirety because, and so it helps us to kind of jump back and forth from this disorienting, like, wait, where are we to, and so you're asking a lot of the audience, but it's, it also makes it very, very engaging because we're confused. We're looking for information. We're getting these little pieces of information and it's feeding us enough to keep us engaged in asking the next question and looking for the next answer. If you do it, Too far, if you push the audience too far, they stop caring and they eject. (laughs) And so this is very masterful storytelling right out of the gate for for someone who's just kind of getting his feet wet in the industry. Absolutely incredible. I think it's also a really great narrative tool to start and stop scenes as it's useful for the story in order to maximize interest. Because some sequences could be one long scene without interrupting the plot. Because there's, there's sequences where they're just breaking it up at times, not even based on where his memory resets. Sometimes it's uh, simply a way to create an extra layer to the story of interest, but then other times we break up a sequence that his memory resets, and it's not necessarily useful to the plot, but it's useful to add intrigue and more specifically to add humor. You know, So the structural tool is really fun. And for, for an example, there's that chase sequence where he snaps to, he's like, what am I doing? am I chasing that guy or is he following me? Oh, I love that. <laughs> and he starts running.
1: Yep, after he's chasing all.
0: me. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Bang. Oh, he's chasing me. And there's no real reason we didn't get anything out of that beyond. That's just kind of a funny, like take. And it's a way to kind of reinforce the fact that this guy really doesn't know what's going on. It makes a makes a fun story. Why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> yeah. The other thing I found interesting with this film, not necessarily as a, well, I guess the structure really does enforce this, but it the, the structure creates this a whole other interesting arc. And I kind of consider it an arc of sympathy, hate and understanding with various characters. So as we meet people, we see them as innocent and likable. And then as we rewind, we find out how abusive or misleading they are. And so we hate them for how they've abused Leonard's condition. Then we understand them and why they act how they do. And so by doing everything kind of in reverse, we go through a completely new experience that you don't really get in other films. And it's so, for instance, Natalie, when we first meet her, she's incredibly sympathetic. We like her a lot. We feel bad as we see her trying to connect with someone who doesn't even remember her. And that kind of, you know, makes us really reach out to her. We see her in the restaurant and meeting him for the first time. And I think we rewind the next time we see her, she's kissing him goodbye, saying that I believe you're going to remember me. And he's apologizing and we're kind of our hearts breaking a little bit right there because we, we feel the hope in her and we, we already know where that's headed for her. That's heartbreak. And so by kind of telling us the results before the expectations is is very it creates a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions. But then, of course, we 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 also see how cruel she was to Leonard. And now we start to hate her like, whoa. She really was just fulfilling all this hatred in him. And so now we're hating her. Of course, as we keep rewinding further back, we then also see how her boyfriend was killed by Lenny and a a whole new dawn of understanding kind of completes that, that arc with Natalie. And of course, similar thing with Teddy, right? He's a little sympathetic at the beginning. We see him get murdered and we, we, we kind of hate him from the outset, maybe just assuming that, Oh, this is John G. He killed his wife. But we're so disoriented that I think we we kind of live in this conflict throughout the film of, do we like Teddy? I mean, I kind of want to like this guy, but didn't he kill? Isn't that what we're going to find out is that he was in part of you thinks that we're going to rewind, rewind all the way back to the murder itself to find out, oh, it was Teddy. But of course, we keep waiting to understand why he was killed. And it's revealed in the climax to not be him but more importantly i think the arc that is most interesting is leonard himself because he starts out as this really sympathetic character that we feel you know very heavily for and as the story unfolds what we actually see is the reveal of a murderer of lenny and not a murderer caught teddy and so the big twist is the making of a murderer not the capturing of one and Mm -hmm. it's just a Beautiful, beautiful plot twist. This movie does not work any other way, and it's genius storytelling. Man, I don't know what else to say. I mean, you know, you
1: just you really have to have. It's it is a it is a clinic in how to write in a circle. Right. It is a clinic in in okay. You know, if you see the entire story as a circle, at three o'clock we're hitting this point, and we want to make sure that we're going to hit this point again at seven o'clock and at 10 o'clock okay at this point we're gonna hit at two o'clock we're gonna hit this point and make sure we hit it here and here and just to so if you look at the story like that i mean there are so many points and they all have multiple intersections so you know like a good example is the burning of the thing of of all of her Mm. pieces well you know the beginning of one of the sections is he's just sitting there in the middle of nowhere and then he's putting out a fire in the, at in the morning time, I guess it is. And then he's walking away. You don't know what the hell just happened, right? But then we back up and we find out, okay, he's burning her things. Well, why the hell is he burning her things? And then we back up more, you know, yeah. and, and we find out that's a regular thing. Like maybe I've burned thousands of your, your things. Like I don't know. Then we back up more and we find, you know, the, the prostitute that, you know, he brought to the, to his play or to his, uh, his room, he wanted her to put him around so he could feel maybe like there, his the female was his wife, you know, like all of these. And that's just one example. There's, you know, threads throughout this whole movie where you just touch on it, right? Like the, the thing is, is, you know, you can look at a movie like this and think this is so daunting. There's no way that I could ever sit down and think to write all of this well, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? It's, it's just these little things. You don't have to hit people over the head with like this brilliant writing, just touch on a thing, move on. Right. And then make sure to come back and touch on that thing again, you know, it later on, and then make sure to come back again and touch on it again, depending on how important it is, touch on it, you know, very lightly, multiple times, like who knows, you know? And, and in, in that way, then you have this congruent story that has a, th- that has these threads that interweave that makes it seem more complicated than it actually is. Like you said, I didn't even think about th- that, but yeah, telling this story from like in, from the beginning to end, it is boring. There's no thread anywhere. The threads are, are made by going backwards, but which is, that's the brilliance of this yeah. is going backwards, right? But the interweaving of all this stuff, like it kind of just happens in this story because of because it's going backwards. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. And he does a great job of teaching us how to watch this movie one piece at a time. And that can be a, a trap if you don't for one you definitely have to trust the audience but then you also need to make sure you're giving the audience enough ammunition to to digest and appreciate everything that's happening and then as you're you're writing it like finding ways that with this structure to find out how can i create new experiences with it what what are things that we can reveal that would shock the audience that they otherwise you know wouldn't get to experience in a normal structure and so like the the whole sequence with natalie like we see her kind of lovey-dovey with them the last thing in the world we're expecting is for her to just berate him and like call him all these mean things and to manipulate him so heavily like Mm -hmm. that is such a turn that you're you're kind of doubled over, <laughs> like you're just. I I remember the first time watching this, I felt a little sick at my stomach because it's just so cruel. She's absolutely, yeah. you know, sinister in that moment. She goes out into her car and sits there and just starts waits. Yeah, <laughs> checking herself in the mirror. Oh,
1: well, I, yeah, I remember seeing that, thinking, "There's nothing he can do." I mean, he could run away, I guess. And it's the detail. He doesn't have time because then in in a sec, in like 10 seconds, he won't know why he's running.
0: (laughs) It's crazy. And they set up that scene whenever she walks in. She's like grabbing pins. She's hiding all the pins. Yes. And it's a detail that you probably miss nine times out of 10 the first time you're watching it. But whenever you have a a expectation of what she's going to do suddenly that becomes significant as hell. You're just like, Oh my God, she planned man. this like ages ago. <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. Unreal, man. Gosh. So I am curious. I don't know. I don't have any notes for this, but comparing this to following, I kind of watched this with an eye towards some of the things we tracked in and following because he has $9 million, you know, to shoot this film. And it's not like a particularly beautiful film I mean that takes place in a very fairly boring location throughout the film like the the hotel isn't anything special the, the the murder scene isn't anything super cool like the cinematography I mean it's nice it's not like it's ugly but it's not calling a lot of attention to itself it, they're really focused on telling the story as cleanly as possible but the as I started kind of thinking through, all the uh, the locations, because this deceptively has a lot of locations that on its face doesn't look like. Because when I think of this movie, I think of all the color sequences. I don't think of the black and whites. And so in the color sequences, we have like two hotels, a restaurant, abandoned building, a bar, and like Natalie's house. And that's virtually it. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but then you start adding in like, well, he's also got to shoot the flashback sequence in the wife's house with him and his wife and the, the, the burglary scene. Oh, yeah, I guess there's also the office. The, yeah, the office. Right. The Sammy Jenkins segments, the their house, the doctor's office, Leonard's office. And it just starts slowly kind of building up to the point where I think what nine million dollars got him is largely time. It bought him, you know, I mean, I guess coincidentally, it bought him a lot of time because to to go through in pre-production and really lay this out, that's going to take time. You're pro- he's probably going to want to test out some ideas and then he's probably going to want rehearsal time with his actors. It's going to buy you that. It's going to buy you, you know, instead of if this was like a 1.5 million, you might have three or four weeks to shoot. He probably got to shoot this over the course of six to eight weeks at least and production on this level it starts to add up that none even though there's not that many actors in this the number of people on set to help manage the locations and all the gear those things start adding up so a single day of production starts to probably run upwards of 100k i don't really know i'd have to sit down and really think through all the all the the crew and uh, logistics but it starts to it starts to add up and so if you start thinking of If you shot this in, let's say, eight weeks, then that's, what, 40 days of production? And that alone, if we're talking 100K, you know, a day, well, you know, you're already at $4 million. Like that just went up really fast or whatever. And so it can just start eating away at at your budget really fast. And for something like this, I can imagine he really wanted time to get everything right on set and to not feel rushed through, through the day. I don't know. Maybe it was a six week shoot. Maybe he's just a madman and did it in three. Who knows? But I think that would be my guess is this didn't necessarily buy him building a set in a soundstage so much as just time to find the right locations to find enough space and time to actually just shoot this thing the way he wants to shoot it. I don't know if you want to weigh in on where where you think nine million went into this thing, you know, by all means, (laughs) probably in
1: the editing Mm. and not i mean not like a million yeah dollars or anything but a lot of it in the editing i don't know how much guy pierce would be
0: I true mean, is, uh an a-list actor you know, working with the first yeah to them this is the first time director like no one had seen and, following and so yeah and and
1: pantoliano for sure
0: who i love i mean i love Jan- oh he's God. freaking amazing every time so, i see him man, i freaking love that guy just, yeah just want to hug him yeah absolutely love i do want to hug him i <laughs> love that guy
1: <laughs> lenny lenny <laughs> just crew you yeah. know what i mean yeah crew and and gear i don't know what do you know what he
0: shot this on i mean film i don't know like which camera or lenses, yeah he shoots but, everything on film yeah and then film adds up it, it adds up man yeah. totally adds up nice but yeah
1: i think you're right time you know, instead of shooting something in a couple of weeks, you shoot something in a couple of months, and and you have more people, yeah. So time and people, and then you have more time and post as as well. True. So, but com- comparing this a little bit to following, like you were doing, it's interesting. the The opening shots are very similar. Close ups on hands.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, messing with stuff, holding stuff. In this case, it was a. Uh, you know, backwards shot of shaking a Polaroid and, but before it was, you know, opening a box and things in it and, but it was super close up. And then, you know, I think also, you know, lighting wise, obviously following was black and white. So color is not, was not an an issue, but that's something too, right? You know, you don't have to do color with black and white. You don't have to you know, worry about lighting too much. You just hard shadows. That's like what you do. At least that's what he did. There are some similarities in that, in that regard. And I still see this as like, you know, how I said uh, in the last episode, episode following, it was like Radiohead's Pablo Honey, this does feel like the (laughs) Benz for them, you know? And then okay computer is next which was oh, what well, what was it insomnia was next yeah, yeah maybe not so maybe not that batman begins would be the the okay computer. i would say i would probably say prestige you know probably was the his okay computer nice if not inception not that inception yeah but i, I guess the the point is is that you know his movies have increasingly grown in scale yeah right so following was as small as you could get, really. And then this was a little bit bigger, but bigger story wise. You know, like not really and a little bit imagery wise. But and when I say scale, I talk about like wide shots, like big, huge, yeah. you know, like stuff that can barely fill, you know, like your screen can't even hold it in, you know,
0: and big explosions, uh, burning buildings down, like everything right, gets all bigger that- and bigger and bigger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, but he's still within the story. Yeah. Right. So he's not using imagery so much to tell the story as the writing and the acting and and what's within just what's what the story is. Right. Yeah. I, I don't feel like like let's compare Memento to like Interstellar. You know, I don't feel like I know the space, like mm-hmm. I recognize the space yeah. and the Interstellar. I'm in outer space. I know where I am, right? All the time. I'm, or even if I'm on a planet, I'm, you know, I know the space. I'm, I'm shown the space, but in following and in memento, you're not given that it's it, you know, yes, I know I'm in a hotel room, but I don't know anything outside of the hotel room. You know, I know that I'm in in Memento. I know that I'm in a tattoo shop, but I don't know anything around that building. Like Hmm. it's just there. I don't really have this like grand vision of anything. He just relies heavily on the story. So I think that following Memento, he's like stuck with that a little bit. And as his budgets go up, he explores the space more, you know, like with Dark Knight, you know, you're in a big city. You know, you know, like with Prestige, even, you know, that you know, I'm in this, this, this town or when he, you know, like goes to the States, I know they, He shows you the town. He shows you the space. And I would add on uh, to that.
0: I don't feel like he's done as much character work since Memento. Like this, the dialogue, this is a huh. very dialogue heavy film. He doesn't really rely on action sequences very much. There's a couple short ones and, and that's it. I mean, most it's very this is characters dealing with characters and almost nothing else. And every film after this, and I'm just not including insomnia, that that I, that's like an abrasion at the back of my brain that I, I try to yeah. ignore. Like he, he, he relies so much more on kind of plots being more action-driven or, like you said, just kind of increasing the scope and the scale of those worlds that he builds. And here he... The world building that he does is within characters. It's never the world itself. All those other worlds, he's literally building, you know, worlds. And here he's just kind of, because I think that's a great point. Like we really, we really are just kind of dropped into. A hotel uh, we're never really exploring spaces we're exploring people and he builds those worlds out very very cleanly and i would say he's never matched after watching this movie i i was like yeah he, he's the dialogue here i think is the best dialogue he's done i don't think he matches this at all from here on out and in some ways he regresses but yeah this is a, a it's a worthy film, and I think I think he might be looking at remaking it. I don't know what he's doing. He's he's doing something with no it. No way. Yeah. So that's kind of a surprise. I'm interested because this that's not what Nolan does. He's not, I mean, I think he escaped Batman and he's not looking to do franchises anymore, which I'm glad. I want to see his original stuff. And so I'm I'm curious if he revisits Memento, what that means. Is it I can't imagine he revisits this exact story again. I would imagine he he finds a new wrinkle and way to explore it, maybe in a TV show or maybe in some other movie, or maybe he's just going to write it. I don't know, or maybe it's not even really happening. Maybe it's uh, someone speculating because it's in his IMDb. Is what where that kind of sent me where it I'm is? getting this from. Yeah, if you look on, on Chris Reynolds' IMDb, did you notice uh, Jonah in the credits again? Oh yeah, he was a production assistant. He was a yeah. he was a P.A. How crazy is that to have your name in the title in the opening title sequence as, you know, screenplay by Christopher Nolan based on the short story by Jonathan Nolan? And then to just be walking around that very set as a P.A. That's that's incredible. hilarious. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, anyway, uh, yeah, I, so, I loved it. I thought it, I thought it was great. And, I you know, I could watch it again just to take notes and to study it you know, as like, you know, for an idea, I think there's more to this, you know, like I love this idea of playing with time. I think we both do and we're suckers for it. And I think there's, you know, more to it than just, just going backward. I I would really like to see more films play with this kind of thing. You know, Tarantino has done it a lot and it's always very interesting because it, it, it makes you pay attention to the film. I thought the acting was wonderful, the writing was brilliant. I would like to read Nolan uh Jonathan's um short story that this is based off of.
0: Same, I keep meaning to do that.
1: That would be really interesting to do. I'm I'm just really glad that he got that opportunity because then it just kickstarted everything because then I think after that he got Batman pretty soon after that. Yeah. I mean, I know he did. He did Insomnia, but then
0: the real game.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, but you don't need I mean, we, I think we established last week, you know, we don't you don't need that much money to make a great film. You just need a great story. You can I even understand. have shitty acting. Yeah, so true. Honestly. And if the story is is good, you could even write to that. Absolutely. You know, there's ways. this
0: thing in acting. There's a book by David Mamet where he discusses his philosophy on acting. And Mamet is a, a world renowned playwright. And he's not big on actors from from what i can tell but he has a, a really interesting philosophy and i don't think it's wrong which is if you've written the script well enough the acting kind of takes care of itself like just say the words and the intention is already in the words so just say the words, play the words, and you'll be okay. And so if you if you write a good enough script to your point, like you can be pretty negotiable with with the performances. If anything, you probably need to hold performances back. I think a lot of bad acting comes from trying to act a little too much. Whereas if you just tell people, you know what, don't, don't react to them, just watch them, you know? And people don't realize that you will react without trying to react. You will perform, even though you're not trying to perform if you're just inhabiting the world and Mm -hmm. just staying there with your with your scene partner. Like just stay there and you will get there. The camera will get it, especially if it's in a close-up. The closer that camera is, the absolute less you need your actor to do. And I'm not above like coaching my my talent into through a scene. I'm, you know, do this, look there. Okay, now let's put all that together. I want you to look there, look down, look back done like it's all about visual storytelling and knowing what you want out of a moment
1: so what are you going to recommend this week i'm going to recommend and i hope i'm not stealing it from you but you texted me the other day that you were watching this film and i, I was like oh my gosh i want to watch that it's so bad we saw it in the theater i'm I, <laughs> it has nothing to do with this movie that we're watching, but.
0: I can't believe we haven't uh, recommended so I, went and,
1: I know. I know. I went in and, and I, I looked and no, we haven't. I'm going to recommend Underwater. It came out, I guess, last year with Kristen Stewart. And it's it opens strong and it just stays strong the whole time. It's like, it, I don't know why it didn't get as much attention as it should have. Maybe just because it was like, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say whatever, but... It's a great –
0: it's a really entertaining, like really well done movie and she's fantastic in it. She crushes the screen in that movie. Yeah. God. And I agree, man. That's such a good recommendation. Like I don't – and I think you could say the same thing with Memento. Memento got legs through word of mouth. I didn't see this in the Mm -hmm. movie theater. I didn't know it existed until a buddy of mine told me and my buddy Juwan. He was like, hey, have you all seen Memento? Oh. Oh y'all gotta watch that! And literally, we ran to a blockbuster, went to my house, sat in my room, and just watched Memento for two hours. Like, <laughs> and I think Underwater needs those kind of legs too. It's one of those things. If you actually sit down and watch it, it's nonstop, packed gills, you know, to gill. Like, it's just great recommendation. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely be putting that in the show notes watch the trailer and i would say don't even watch the trailer just go hit play that's what no, we didn't watch the trailer we had no yeah, idea just
1: <laughs> exactly i was like i just want to see a movie yeah. all right let's go so
0: yeah and it's it is streaming on hbo max nice so. i'm gonna recommend a tv show it's called killing eve if you want great performances i don't like sandra O's great she's always gonna do great but i don't think people are aware of jody Khmer. she is Absolutely riveting to watch. And Killing Eve isn't necessarily an easy show to get into. You got to give it a couple of episodes. But then once you kind of get into it and you're just you really just watch it for her. Jodie Comer kills. She is so egregiously entertaining to watch that. I can't imagine anyone who sits through two episodes just won't want to hit play just to see her and what she's going to do next. She is so wildly entertaining that she will she's going to be on everyone's radar. I don't know what's going to do it, but at some point. She's going to hit the scene and it's going to be like Jennifer Lawrence all over again. Like people are going to lose their minds over Jodie Comer. Assuming I'm even saying her name right. I don't know. It might be Comer, but Comer (laughs) Comer sounds so much more elegant.
1: (laughs) Yeah, let's just just say that.
0: (laughs) Nice. We have a a spotlight, a short spotlight of the week. It's called Ovarian Cyst from Aaron Fromm. This is uh, your pick. And if you want to add any notes to that, that's you know, feel free to do so now. <laughs> I don't. You just need to go watch nice. it. Nice. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, thanks yeah. for digging that up. Nice. So over the next few weeks, we're going to slightly deviate for the holidays. We as everyone's kind of socially distancing, you know, still as you know, the the, the pandemic numbers rise, more infections are, are kind of happening. And so it's probably a good idea to minimize, you know, all the socializing for for the, the you know next few weeks over the holidays which sucks because this is the time when we finally get to see our family and and so to kind of offset that I thought it would be fun for us to kind of have a string of guest appearances so we can kind of Imitate the idea of friends getting together and uh, having some community. And so I don't know the sequence that all this is going to happen. I'm pretty sure next week will be, we're going to have our buddy uh, and friend of the podcast, Joe Howells, on. He works at Weta in New Zealand, which is famous for doing a lot of the effects work for Lord of the Rings. And so we're going to continue the saga. If you heard our last edition of uh, Lord of the Rings, The, the Fellowship of the Ring, then I was in New Zealand at the time we had Joe on and it would be absolutely We would be killed in our sleep by Joe if we did a Lord of the Rings and didn't have him on. Yes. yes. And so we would fly over to the US. Right.
1: And
0: So we're going to cover the two towers with Joe next. And then at some point over the next couple of weeks after that, we're going to have on. Recurring guest uh, Scott Garrett Graham, who's gonna he wants to do Amadeus, and then we also have Dave Jasmine, who I honestly thought Dave would would have been our very first guest, and so I'm I'm surprised we just haven't had him on yet. Dave is a writer and has lo- 29 episodes later. <laughs> right. We're close. We're right there. We're Ugh. close, <laughs> and so he I don't I have no idea what he's gonna pick, and so if next week it, we end up you know doing electric boogaloo 2 or whatever then that's that's dave <laughs> like I, you just don't know what this guy's gonna do yeah, oh so, gosh. yeah. so stay tuned we're gonna have a, a slew of special guests and at some point i still want to have Alyssa on i always feel like she's too busy for us you know that'll be a fun one at some point we'll have Alyssa. i don't know that'll be in the next few weeks but she's one of our dear friends that we've mentioned yep. several times on the show So, yeah, so many things. So stay tuned next week, probably Lord of the Rings Two Towers. But who knows <laughs> So, as scheduling dictates. Don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes, leave us a note if there's something you want us to say or talk about or review or you want us to pay more attention to the, the color grades or the, the kind of rims and tires that people use in their, I don't know, in, in their movies, uh, just whatever. <laughs> like if there's something you want us to talk about, like, you know, let us know and we'll keep an eye out. No guarantees. And if you want to leave a note on this particular episode, you can do that at com slash memento.
1: And our quote of the day this week is from Michael Mann. I don't underestimate audiences' intelligence. Audiences are much brighter than media gives them credit for. When people went to a movie once a week in the 1930s and that was their only exposure to media, you were required to do a different grammar.
0: I love the use of grammar there because we are such an educated audience. Mm-hmm. If you played this movie in the 1930s, Memento in the 1930s, the audience probably would have had a much more difficult time. Even if you made it you know, time period appropriate, it would probably still be a little difficult to, to you know, really track. And so understanding the education of your modern day audience, uh, it's really critical. Something made from 1970 isn't going to be as interesting nine times out of 10 in the year 2020. And so just understanding what your audience is capable of digesting completely changes the pace and the style that you're going to approach them with. And I love what Michael Mann says here and the very first sentence, right? I don't underestimate audience's intelligence because I think if you respect the audience, they'll reward you for it. You just need to start with the fundamental appreciation that they can keep up if you challenge them. I
1: like that. Yeah. They can keep up if you challenge them.
0: Yeah. Nice.
1: I love it. Yeah, I got I got, I got nothing to add. Yeah. I mean, that's that's interesting. And I'm not the craziest Michael Mann fan, to be honest. But I do like his quotes that that we've put up here.
0: He's intelligent. Uh, and the reason I picked him was, yeah. I know Christopher Nolan is a, a really big fan. I think there's going to be one more michael mann film we cover which is heat and at some mm. point we'll cover heat because that is one of the all-time
1: yeah yeah i think we need to it's been way too long for me yeah i, I could not tell you anything about nice. it Nice. we'll
0: queue we'll, so we'll it like it that up uh, in the coming months then for sure okay
1: nice awesome Well, it's been great. Thank you so much for staying with us. If you're still with us, like Wes said, join us next week, maybe Lord of the Rings, Two Towers with Joe. And please review us, share us with your friends, all that good stuff. It all matters and it all helps. Until next time, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies.